Thank you, Mike, and welcome Professor John B. Taylor, the Marion Robert Raymond, Professor of Economics at Stanford University, and the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution. For aficionados of economic policy, here's your chance. He's the author of The Taylor Rule, an equation which links the Federal Reserve's benchmark interest rates to levels of inflation and economic growth. You'll learn what The Taylor Rule is. He served as Undersecretary of Treasury um, under President George W. Bush and on the Council of Economic Advisors under Presidents Jimmy Carter and President George H. W. Bush. We are also extremely proud to have him on our board of advisors. Former Fed Chairman Bed Bernanke said that Taylor's, quote, influence on monetary theory and policy has been profound. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said it best, Taylor's work has affected the way policymakers and economists analyze the economy and approach monetary policy. Any doubts that we are very lucky to have him here with us today. Also, I just looked at the attendees. We've got a diverse group from the media, from Bloomberg and MarketWatch, from the private sector, from the life insurance industry to the energy industry. We've even got uh, the deputy chief of, of the Malawi embassies. It's international. And John and I were talking because we've got none other than Ed Chow. Ed Chow um, was the principal turning President Carter's tax on capital gains hike into a tax cut. He then got interested, was the congressman for Silicon Valley. He then ran for the Senate and he taught at Princeton and has had a distinguished career in so many, many fields. Ed, welcome. John, would you like to say a few words or should we go right to our conversation? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's it's a great honor, and uh, the, the guests are wonderful to he- have listened to what you have to say, what I have to say. It's it's a very important time, and I'm glad you mentioned the Taylor Rule. It's sort of back in the in the uh, discussion quite a bit. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I'm happy to do it. But uh, thanks so much for having me on, Mark. Well, thank you, George. And let's start on something that's uh, personal to the two of us: George Schultz and Paul Volcker. George Schultz and Paul Volcker have had an influence on your career as economist and public service. I was honored that they were also founding board members of the ACCF. Your thoughts, please, on Secretary Schultz, Secretary of State, Treasury and Labor, and Director of OMB, and of course, Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Well, thanks so much. They're both good friends, especially especially George. He's lived across the street from me. He's a, lived here, he was 100 years old. He's a great public servant uh, all the way, all the way, all the way through. And I'm also, I think you mentioned this, I'm the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow at Stanford, which I'm very proud of. But he's a remarkable person. He he continued to be influential all the way through. It's really remarkable to know him and, and talk to him and bounce ideas off of him. He, would, he tended to be supportive about the right things, more of a, of a market-oriented person. And he always stuck to that throughout and I admired that. He he was uh, very much on the notion that we should have a steady policy, which I think influenced me, but he's a, he's a really remarkable person. And Paul, of course, was Fed chair and had a lot to do with getting the inflation back where the where it was in the bad old days with Burns, et cetera. And he, he undid a lot of that and uh, it was tough. It was a tough job, but uh, he got us started on on, I think where we are now, we're not there all the way, that's for sure. 
but a remarkable person. I didn't know him as well as I knew George. George is a good friend, but uh, Paul's a remarkable public servant. Okay, here we go, the Taylor Rule. Who could have a conversation without with you without immediately asking about the Taylor Rule? What is it? Is the federal Fed following it? I listened to your CNBC Squawk Box last May where you said the Fed needs to do a little more with a rate hike. Your thoughts, please. Well, thanks for mentioning it. It's It's been around 30 years or so. It, it didn't just come overnight. It was a lot of thinking. I've always been interested in trying to find ways to make monetary policy more understandable, uh, more something that anybody could get their hands around. So simplicity has had very complicated formulas. They're way too complicated for any reasonable person to understand, but look for ways to simplify it. And uh, I've finally found a way to simplify it. Only two variables. And there's you say the interest rate should be higher if inflation is higher. It's I actually chose a number, one and a half percent. So inflation goes up by one, interest rate should go up by one and a half. But also the state of the economy, if we're in a boom, if we're in a slump. So uh, there was other questions. Should the exchange rate be there? Should other countries be there? But decided to make it as simple as possible. And, and that's where it came from. And I don't know why it became so popular. It wasn't always popular. I didn't, I didn't name it, of course. But it was, I don't know who named it exactly, lots of people, but it was uh, always very, very uh, useful to, uh, I, I don't know, became more useful over time. And it's now in the reports uh, of Fed issues. They, they took it out. They put it in. It took, it's now in again. And um, I'm, I'm happy about the fact that it's in. And they refer to it. Every, every member of the FOMC knows about it. And they talk about it. And now the question is off or on. Well, they got off quite a bit last couple of years. And uh, they, the interest rate was just 25 basis points. The rate should have been five or six percent. But they've uh, they've adjusted. They've had a big adjustment over the last couple of years, and they're now five between five and five and a quarter. So that's quite a ways. I think they should go a little bit further. We'll we'll see. They paused, as you know. Uh, they paused a little bit, so they're thinking about where to go next. I think they should go a little bit higher. Uh, there's a lot of questions, international questions. In a way, the Fed is a leading central banks. Other central banks follow it. But I think a rule, a strategy, I, I like this one. I don't know why it's been so popular over time. Maybe because it is simple. Maybe it's because it's easy to describe. It's not perfect, but it works pretty well. And and uh, I'm delighted that there's there's so much reference to it. Gives me a chance to speak to people like you. For those who'd like to know more about Professor Taylor's work, I encourage you to go to his Stanford University homepage, where you'll find links to his recent books, articles, interviews, and papers, including the, quote, Taylor Rule and the Transformation of Monetary Policy in 2012. Taylornomics, of which the Taylor Rule is just one component. These are three broad questions, um, but uh, it'll give us a chance to get a handle on economic policy. One, do we have a healthy economy? Two, if you were president, and mind you, with a compliant Congress, what would you do, fiscal policy? And three, if you were the chairman of the Federal Reserve, what would you do? If you could take on all three? I'll try. It's a tough question. But first of all, I, I think the economy could be much healthier. Inflation rate is well well above two, which the Fed chose to be a target, along with other central banks a while ago. It got almost to 10, now at four or 5%. So first of all, that's since we're talking about monetary policy, I think it would be a healthier economy if we're back towards two. 
And we hopefully will do that in a smooth way. The main thing is you don't shock the economy. You, you make it clear that's the advantage of a rule or a strategy so people understand it. The interest, interest rate has to stay a little bit higher. Uh, if it stays higher and, it, and comes down as the inflation rate does come down, I hope it will, then we'll be better off. So I think it's very important. Now, if I were, if I were president, that's a big question. Um, I would really like to emphasize the economy more uh, than is, and, and, and here I would not just monetary policy. The, the deficit is large, it's coming down, but it should come down uh, further. I think that regulatory policy is another thing we should focus a lot on. Um, and we're, we're probably going the wrong way in that respect. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a person that likes markets and likes to encourage markets. And I think we need to do more about that. And of course, international has become a real issue right now. What's going to happen with respect to Ukraine and our partners around the world? So I think that these three things, all they all go together. And quite frankly, just to wrap up the way they all go together, you think about monetary policy, it's a global issue. It's not just United States. European, European Central Bank has had the rate quite low. They're starting to raise it. Um, the uh, former governor of the, of the Bank of Japan was just out here at Stanford, indicated he's probably has to pick up. He's not the, the governor anymore. Latin American inflation is quite high. Even if you ignore Venezuela and Argentina, it's still pretty high. So we have a long way to go. And I, I think that one thing to look forward, I've worked on this myself, is could you have some more of a global thing because 2%, 2 is, is where many central banks are, including the Fed. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Uh, it took a long time to get there and, and 2% is an easy round number for people to understand. And so I think if somehow if we could have a global economy where all the countries were close to two, uh, it could be that the Fed is, is part of that. It could be the European Central Bank becomes part of it. Even be better if we had China and Russia be part of it. But it's it seems to me it's a goal that I've always strived for. And I think we shouldn't ignore that. We should try to find a way to balance out. And I think it would it would do good. We, we Now there's so much, sorry to drift off a little bit, there's so much attention to military and political issues. And how often do you hear economics? And this is a very important part of the economics issue. And the advantage of, of rules or strategies, it's it's clear, it's simple, um, maybe too simple, some people used to say, but at least it got the inflation rate in, it's got the state of the economy in, and it may be a small open economy, you should look at the exchange rate as well, but it's it's something that could work globally, and I wish we were moving in that direction. We are, but is it fast enough is the question. Question I have, um, how does one decide if we have a healthy economy or do well, we have a healthy economy well first of all you want growth to be strong and we we have not had strong growth second you want to have inflation to be doesn't interfere with people's decisions that's why this two percent is is good i think that's those are easy measurable things i think in terms of uh, markets and regulation you there are ways to measure whether there's too much interference with the markets and I, that's the most difficult thing to do, but it's very important. So th those are measures of policy, but the outcome is important too. Do we have a growth rate that's 3% rather than 1%? We can, and other countries have been able to do it. And so I think that's that's not necessarily 
the be all than end all, but it's very important. I'm disappointed that we're not doing better in the United States. We could do better. And and I would focus on that. The unemployment rate is quite low. A lot of that is is because of the people entering and exiting the labor force. The the problem I think that um, I'm drawn more to over time is the inequality issue. We have a lot of inequality in the United States. If you go around, you see it's it's bad. I think that somehow a faster growing economy would do more for that. But so would too much regulation, so much other things that we could remove ourselves from, it would be better. So I'm a person that the I think the markets work well. They don't always work well. We have to worry about monopolies and things like that. Uh, but it's it's a it's a good functioning economy and uh, it's worked pretty well. Let's get back to that. Uh, just a short follow-up question. I, my Uber driver, after inquiring what I do, asked, <laughs> with our ever-growing gargantuan debt, isn't it inevitable that we are doomed? No, it's because we can get it down. <laughs> it's not that hard to get down. Just have to have a little control over spending and uh, we, we can do it. We've, we've had balanced budget. Now, this is another aspect. I, I'm all for a monetary policy, rule or strategy, but same with fiscal policy. Why can't we have a fiscal policy, which we have a balanced budget in normal times? Sounds radical, doesn't it? But a balanced budget in normal times, we have a, a surplus in extra good times and a deficit in bad times. But we, but this is a way to get at this. And I think it doesn't have to happen overnight. It can happen gradually. So you're Uber driver, reassure the Uber driver would be better off if we if we have a sensible policy to get the deficit down. And then there's a, there's advantages to that. The interest rates will be a little bit lower. Uh, we'll have a, a ability to compu- communicate with other countries about the values of a low, at least smaller deficit. And so I would not uh, I would not give up at all. It, again, it's monetary policy, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, they all go together and international as well. But I think that fiscal policy is important. One other thing I would mention is the danger of large deficits and they tend to be financed by monetary policy. It's the easiest way. And I think that's that's one of the problems you've seen with very high inflation countries. They have high deficits, which tend to be financed by printing money. And that makes this link between monetary and fiscal policy very strong and uh, we would avoid that if we had a sensible fiscal policy as well. Would you support the following constitutional amendment? That is, um, Mr. Taylor it is president with a compliant Congress and chairman of the Federal Reserve all at once. <laughs> Those are hard to define. I like, I like all of them. Yes, I, I think that the question is what they do. Well, we know what the Fed will do, follow a policy rule, make it simple as possible. We know what the Congress will do, have a balanced budget on average over time, not always exactly. And uh, we have uh, a president that drives towards towards a free market economy, put it that way, but less regulation than we have now. So it's, yes, we need, we need all those. <laughs> um, we both know Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. And the interesting thing about Jillian, she's an anthropologist and looks at economic policy as an anthropologist. But in a recent column, I found out she's also Hegelian. In Hegelian dialectics, she wrote, Reaganomics was the antithesis to the 
previous post-war consensus that promoted paternalistic government guidance for markets in common. Now we have a similar radical challenge um, with Bidenomics as a a dialectic against um, the current status quo. Your thoughts? Is there? I mean, I know it's hard to predict. Have we now got this this uh, great new force out there, which could fundamentally change how we look? Called bidenomics. Well, there are there are different forces. I if I had to choose Reagan economics versus Biden economics, I would get closer to Reagan. That's for sure. But the question is, can we, through people like yourself, people like me, can we steer the economy? Uh, in a more sensible direction. And that means what I mentioned before, monetary policy, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, international policy on the same uh, track. But I I don't think we're in that situation now. So we need to change policy. So I've had a lot of experience in government. Sometimes you change policy because people's change. Sometimes you change policy because ideas change. I think we need a little bit of both. And the question is, are the ideas dominant? Now, I, I, I look around the world and I worry that we're not uh, explicit enough about what needs to be done. I mean, in a way, I, I teach economics one at Stanford. I, I like teaching the beginning students. They're so eager to learn more about how the economy works. And that's an area where you, you get to the basics. You, the, the markets work pretty well. They're not perfect. There's externalities. There's things you need to worry about, and gov- there's a role for government. But you try to get the right role, and and that's very important. But I think the the issue with respect to where we're going forward is I do think that the economy will do better if we have a little less regulation, a little more sensible monetary policy, a little more sensible fiscal policy. They're not good now. You know, they're not they're good as good a shape they might be. There's lots of debates, and the debate is heating up. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but uh, I think the more that we're able to make it, that's why I like simple. You make it as simple as possible so that people understand, hey, yeah, this makes sense. Let's do that. Then we'll be better off. So it's, it's a complicated thing. I've been, as you have been involved all your life, I've been involved all my life since I was an undergraduate. And I've, I've just loved this subject about, and, and, and explaining it is so important. So get, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do so. I know it doesn't isn't used before, but I, of course, was introduced to the dismal science with Paul Samuelson's textbook. What do you use now? Something you wrote? Uh, yes, yes, I have actually, believe it or not, the tenth tenth edition of my basic textbook. I have a copy over here somewhere. Principles of Economics, um, and that's a that's the same level as Samuelson, the beginning students and. We use that. It's done very well. It's in the 10th edition, not bad. But uh, you also think of, think about other communication. That's why communicating to people who haven't had much economics is very important. So uh, principles of economics, of course, is a, at least a term, sometimes longer. And you get into both macro, micro, you get into free markets, you get into regulation. So it's very important to that. But I would say there's other books. I have a book called Macroeconomics, too. That's, that's in the 8th edition. And so, and there's other ways you have, I'll hold it up. Here's an old book. Here it is, sorry. First principle. And so you have different ways to communicate. And then the, the, another thing which um, we, we have every year, this is important. Every year we have a conference 
at Stanford on monetary policy. And we've had very important people come. We had the governor, former governor of the Bank of Japan just a month or so ago. And so that really focuses attention on what needs to be done. It's a little more abstract, a little more in the weeds than a principles of economics book, but you got to do all levels. And that's why I think it's so important that you have people who have never had economics, it makes sense. People have a lot of economics, people that have PhDs in economics, people who are tired of economics, all those things. And, and you find ways to communicate to all of them. It's hard because at different levels, you, you, you don't teach uh, PhD students the same way you teach freshmen. Now, the next question relates to something that I believe we strongly um, believe in, and that is productivity is the key to higher economic growth. In our webinar with Glenn Hubbard, he proudly made reference to On the Prospects for Higher Economic Growth 2017, which he co-authored with you, John Cole, and Kevin Warsaw. Are the conclusions in that book still relevant for today's economic challenge? Completely relevant. They're really the same. What I'm One thing that's true about economics, it doesn't change that much. Supply, demand is still there. Market determines the level of prices, less is government intervention because of externalities. And so that principle is there. So what that means and what this paper tried to drive home was that to go with that, you have to have a good fiscal policy. You have to have low tax rates, tax rates that are the right level for people to, to contribute to our society to grow. You have to have regulations about rights. So, so what that, that piece tried to show with different perspectives, so John, Kevin Warsh and John Kogan, myself, uh, work together, but we, we, we strive to explain in as simple as possible terms, I don't know how simple I can get, that the economy works better if there's a role for government. Obviously, we have a role for government in the military. We have a role for government in other places. But we, we have to be sure that we allow and we don't stifle the markets So because they often deliver the good. One thing I try to, in this paper delves into that as well, is try to say, look, if you, in, in the best of all worlds, you step back, the market does pretty well. People don't understand that. People don't understand why does the market work so well? It just seems like magic. Well, here's how it works well. Here's examples. I like to, to have experiments in classes where the, the students actually take part. They're part of the market system. They can see why, oh, this is pretty good. And so you have a, have a way to demonstrate Nothing like a demonstration. We have little break up in small groups and have markets. And so you begin to see how markets work. And they're a very important thing. I think that the, to go to your question, that the, the question which the issue that needs to be addressed is, is globally. How do you relate, say, China and the United States, two big countries? There's different systems. Which way, which will, way will prevail? I think we'll do better if we do better economic growth. And also, let's not forget what I said a few minutes ago. The income distribution issue is very severe. Uh, we, we see very poor countries in, in Africa, especially, but also Latin Americans. And the, the sense in which they can understand that the system will work better. It's hard to imagine sometimes how it could possibly work better with, compared to someone who has hands on the till, but it's, be, it's, it's much better it's how the system works. And that's why I tend to emphasize that as much in my class. You don't want to just say that's the only way to do it because there are other ways. 
and you say why this way works best. Um, John, I spent a lot of time in South Africa. I used to be a, a long distance runner and got very much interested in Nelson Mandela. And you probably know the story, but when he got elected, uh, he went to Davos and the Vietnamese and the Chinese communist leaders at that time, remember that was an old China, said, Nelson, the one thing you've got to do is not nationalize the economy. Uh, and that's from their perspective. And he went back and at the airport said, we're not nationalizing to the great chagrin of, of the ANC. I just came back from South Africa. And obviously, it's a mess for so many, many reasons. But a big reason, of course, is, is, is corruption. Um, but inequality, uh, I think that is a big challenge for both of us. I remember in 2017, when Thomas Piketty's book came out, I was at an evening uh, event and a, um, a conservative Republican came in. Well, hell, I'll, I'll tell you exactly who it was. It was Senator Jeff Sessions. And I said, Senator, he said, what's up? And I said, have you heard of Thomas Piketty's book, Capital? And he says, well, what is it? I mean, it's, it's an economist. And I said, and, it, and it's 700 pages. Why should I care about that? And I said, well, you know, they're having meetings on it. And you know what? It's an Amazon bestseller. <laughs> um, and what he posited, as you know, is the the inevitable inequality that, that comes from capitalism and came up with recommendations to address this. Needless to say, as you said, inequality is a big issue, and I think we all need to be concerned about it. You have a different perspective than Thomas Piketty, and it's laid out in a Hoover Club discussion in 2020 of another book. The Myth of American Inequality. Glenn Hubbard in our webinar said we have to be concerned about opportunity, not inequality. But your thoughts, including the subtitle of the book that you discussed, that government biases policy debate. So as a free market person, what do we do about inequality? Well, first of all, let's, let's start with what you just said, free markets. There's a, a great advantage to having people have the opportunity. That's not indistinguishable. An opportunity gives people a chance. But how do you provide better, better situation report? Well, you better education. That's a big issue uh, in many parts of, of the world, but let alone the United States. So we could do better on that. And I think you have different ways you can do it. But uh, that that's where I would start. And you know, it's very young people, it's it's training them for the marketplace or charging them forever what they have to do. So th then there's the, that's related to the myth. So we can deal with this problem. It, it is a serious problem, let me say. You you have 10 cities, you have, I live too, not too far from San Francisco, it needs, to, it needs some work. Uh, there's different parts of, of the country, let alone the world. And so this is very important, but I, I would say it's not inseparable from a strong, it's hard to have a strong economy where you have people excelling because of their skills, because of the system, and at the same time have increase in poverty. And so I think that that should not be um, something we put aside. It we tend to put it aside too much, but I would say more, the more I think about it, the, when I say the myth of American inequality, it's something that we can deal with. It's a myth, it's, that, it's not permanent, it's something we can deal with by giving people the opportunity. And I would start with education. But I would start with, with the jobs, with the ability to for firms to set up new jobs, not to be constrained by uh, things that are like environment, perhaps, that's around them. 
And that would that would be I would say the focus I would give it. And it's not it, you can see differences of approaches, different parts of the world. You have good school systems, bad school systems. You have poor parts of the world. You have less parts of the less poor parts of the world. You have rich people. You have poor people. So that's a that's a system which works well, but we have to make sure it continues to work well and not to to stifle what. Um, is in, in people's own interest, but, but you have to give them the chance and you have to give them the opportunity. And that is, I would say, stress education, maybe because I'm an educator, but I think it's it's something that needs to be stressed quite a bit. Well, thank you. Free trade or America first trade? I remember going to the Ozarks after the 2016 election to try to understand why Trump won the election. I said, I learned it in Economics 101. David Ricardo and Comparative Advantage give you, the blue-collar worker, a refrigerator that is now less expensive than it would be if we didn't have free trade. The unemployed blue-collar responded, I don't give a SH dot dot, I don't have a job. You've got a unique perspective becoming Treasury Undersecretary for International shortly after 9-11. Um, your thoughts on U.S. trade policy today, especially China? I'd say one thing. Let's try to have more more free trade. It goes against the person who says, what about I don't have a job? But it doesn't. So what, what I've observed is economies that are more, more open. And, and by the way, we're, we're not careful going the other direction. Economies that are more open give more people's opportunities. And it especially in the world we live in now. You have technology, you have communication, you have, you and I are talking about different parts of the world. I don't know where you are, but you're far away. And the thing is that, that I, I speak to people in China, in Europe, in Africa. And so that is the, the world is coming together. And the more we, let's think, let's be optimistic. Let's think about why should there be such a different approach in, in China and the United States? And I think that is the, the that's the key here. But I think that in, in some sense, free trade is less interference. Obviously, you can't have complete free trade, but you can get a lot closer than we have been. And countries that have had free trade work pretty well. And I think that's the advantage. Uh, the U.S. has always been a, more of a free trade country. It doesn't uh, have to be that way. It is that way. And so... So again, we go. What I what I teach students is let's start with free trade. What's the advantage of free trade? And then you have the rationale. Well, you have to raise money. You have to do all these things to have the government involved. You you don't worry. This you don't want these bad things coming into the country. So you have tariffs and restrictions against that. So the but the starting place is if 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 it's okay for you and me to trade. Why is it okay for if you're in another another country and be to trade? Why what why do we have to re, be re, more restrictive between countries than it, than we are within country? And I think that's the that's what we have to focus on. And, and it is like free trade. Obviously, there'll always be reasons to interfere, reasons to for government. And there's contraband stuff. There's other things you need to worry about. But but I think in the meantime, if there's a focus on allowing people to benefit from trade, then they do benefit, then we'll be better off. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a free trader, I guess, if you like to say, 
I've always, one, one of the things in, in government, which I've had a chance to do many times, is there's there's forces in the other direction. Sometimes they come from Congress, sometimes they come from administration, sometimes from different departments. So one, one advantage of agencies like the Council of Economic Advisors, where I served, is there's an orientation towards towards a more free trade. I hope it continues that way. But you there's a tendency in government uh, to look for restrictions. And and the, there's fewer agencies that are trying to provide more opportunities, more openness for the U.S. and for individual citizens. ESG, that wasn't in my introduction to economics. It's now a concern for every business, especially those operating around the world and facing unclear and conflicting government regulations. In thinking about this subject, I remember you co-authoring, quote, some thoughts on the business roundtable state of corporate purpose with George Schultz, Michael Boskin, who, like you, is, is generous to lend his name to our Board of Scholars, and others for the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. That was in 2020. Any new thoughts about ESG and free markets? Well, that, that paper you're referring to was really a reaction to too much emphasis on ESG, to allow businesses to create wealth, to create jobs, to, to do what they can. And they, many of the restrictions were trying to prevent them from doing that. So the, the business roundtable state of corporates, corporation was a little more control <laughs> than, uh, than we liked, than George liked or Mike liked. And, and so we, we wrote against that. I think we made a big case. So maybe it was too strong, but it was, it was make the case. Look, there's a, there's a good system here. Why, why not, uh, why not focus on that? Why not make it, make that system better? And of course, there are externalities. There's pollution. There's uh, maybe there's going to be global warming. There's another uh, thing you need to worry about. But I think that the more that we focus on the, the business of businesses is is to promote good products for people because that's where they make profits. That was the focus of that paper. And there was little emphasis on it at the time. There's less emphasis now. Maybe it should have had more of an impact, but but we need need to do that a little bit more. And I think the problem that you're mentioning is that even many businesses are saying, well, I can't be too forceful about this. I won't be promoted or my business won't do so well. So there's a, a force in the other direction. So I, I'd say this is something that you're right. It's a concern for many businesses. But it, 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 we should have more emphasis on the advantage of businesses. Uh, I, there's a, you know, Facebook, people like that. We have Apple. We have all sorts of firms that are that are doing well. They could do better. And there's an international aspect of this as well. We have to have countries in India and China and other countries that can do the same kind of thing as the U.S. This I keep coming back to to a global situation because more and more. I mean, I've written a lot of international issues, and you mentioned Africa. You mentioned other parts of the world. So the the it, why is why is Africa different? It's not really different. People are the same, and so we give the right circumstances, we can have a more successful global economy. So I'm I'm anxious to do that. I wish there was more focus on what I call basic economics. It's basic economics around the world. Less. I wouldn't say less focused on military, the right focus on military, less focus on politics, the right focus on politics, but don't forget the economics. 
And the more we do that, the better off we'll be. I think that's the main answer to your question. ESG, well, there's another view of the world, which is that economics, profits are good. You, you have limits on profits, you have taxes and things like that. And this system will work very well if you focus on that a particular approach. Reflections. This is a concluding question we ask all our webinar guests. As you reflect on your life as a distinguished economist and public servant, may I ask, what was your proudest accomplishment? What was your biggest regret? Well, in some sense, they're the same because I I feel good that there's more emphasis on quantitative things. You, you began by talking about the Taylor rule. There was no Taylor rule. 30, 40 years ago. And uh, I didn't name it, but that particular approach, you know, it's published in the Fed reports. It's in other central banks. Everybody knows about it. And so it's in the right direction. And I think that what we found through that particular approach, and what this is, um, uh, if you like, is proud about this, but uh, I didn't do it. It, it, it. Other people did it. It's there. It's That's what that research is about. People pick and pick it up. People can use it. But it's quite amazing. Uh, and I think it's looking forward. That we got nearly 10% inflation, 9% inflation in the U.S. Why do we do that? Simple policy rules or strategies like don't do that. Don't keep the interest rates so low when you have so many pressures. And, and you know the Fed didn't do that. They didn't publish the the rule themselves. So so that's in a sense my my hope that we could do more of that. And that's the regret is why can't we move faster? Why don't we do this a little faster? Why can't the the global system understand that it would be better off? And and I include you know we're we're moving not moving as fast as we might. Uh, there's hints about restrictions on trade of different kinds of goods, and so I think that that if we stress that and stress you know just like free trade between New York and California, we have free trade between California and Beijing. There's no reason why we can't do more of that. And if you go back and you look at what's been successful. Success has been free markets. Success is not from central planning. And so I think that's why I think education is so important to under, to so people understand what is the accomplishment is largely economics. It's largely markets, not entirely, but it's largely. And, and the disappointment, I say, as you say, biggest regret, we haven't gone further in this promotion. So I'm optimistic that we'll, the, the progress that with ups and downs, there's ups and downs, there's forwards and backwards. And there's different reasons for that, different people, different times, different circumstances, different commentators. But you can see the progress that we've made over time. Uh, and I think that's what I would focus on. That's the that's the accomplishment, although the, the discipline we haven't gone further. Professor Taylor, thank you for being with us today. Thank goodness my economic education today is complete. Learning introductory economics from Professor Anita Summers, Larry Summers' mother at Swarthmore College. At the same time, you were introduced to the dismal science in Princeton, and now finally understanding the Taylor rule. 
John, any final thoughts? I say just thank you for having me on. Keep up what you're doing. It's very important. And I think both both sides, as you stressed, are important so that we can see which is the better side. And I think I've tried to articulate a little bit why the approach that I've suggested works. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And we are now adjourned. Thank you.